Well, good morning, everybody. It's great to have you here today. And if this is your first time with us, man, welcome. Glad you're here. My name is Joe, and I get the great privilege of being the lead pastor here at New Life. And uh, it's a wonderful church, and we hope that God leads you here. Uh, we'd love to have you. Hey, if you've spent any time here at New Life, then you probably have heard me talk about how much I love sports, okay? I do. I like a lot of sports. Um, this is one of my favorite times of the year, though, however, and, and this is why, because the NBA playoffs are happening right now. Did anybody watch the NBA playoffs? Yeah, more of you need to, I'm just saying. I don't watch a lot of pro basketball during the year. I pay attention to it, but I don't spend a lot of time watching it. But man, once the playoffs start, it's like every night there's multiple games. I I love it. We're down to four teams now, and uh, Portland's in trouble, but uh, those of you who know I'm talking about, you know I'm talking about. I'll, I'll tell you all that because uh, there's, there's, there's four teams left. One of those is the Toronto Raptors. I'm not a huge Toronto Raptors fan, but I'm just going to say this. Kawhi Leonard's Game 7 buzzer beater shot over the 76ers to win that entire series last week was probably, probably one of the greatest buzzer beaters I have ever seen in my whole life. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? Have you seen that? It was amazing. And if you didn't see it, let me just kind of tell you, it's right at the end of the game. The, the score is tied. They're, the seconds are ticking off, and Kali Leonard, Leonard, who is their superstar, chucks the ball up for the, from the corner as he's falling out of bounds, and, and the ball hits the rim, and it just bounces, just bounces all over that rim. And, and like, I'm, on the, I'm watching this from my home. I'm on the edge of my seat going, oh, and I'm doing the whole thing. And it goes in, and I come off the couch, and I'm screaming at the top of my lungs. My wife's at the other end of the house. She's like, what's the matter? And I'm like, nothing. And, and anyway, it was, it was a great moment, all right? Um, but I'll tell you, the next day, somebody took the video of Kawhi Leonard hitting that game-winning shot, and they added the, the theme music to Titanic, My Heart Will Go On, by Celine Dion. And it made it ten times better. <laughs> Let me show you what I'm talking about. Watch here. Watch this. You might be wondering, what does that have to do with the book of Acts? <laughs> nothing. <laughs> Absolutely nothing. Except to say this, that one of the things I love about basketball, and really uh, any sports for that matter, but when you're watching a game like basketball, you can actually pick out the moments when you feel the entire momentum of the game shift. 
You know, like, like, like when there's a steal and a fast break that leads to a dunk and the crowd goes wild. There's actually like a momentum that shifts in the whole game. Or perhaps there's a team that all of a sudden goes ice cold and they cannot make a basket to save their life. But the other team goes on like a 10 or 15 point run. The entire momentum shifts. And I love that about sports. You know, you know how I would describe the book of Acts, the first four chapters? All the momentum is with the church. All the momentum is with the church. I mean, the, the, the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost, filled the disciples. They went out preaching. 3,000 people repented of their sins and were baptized, and the church was started. And these first Christians, they were devoted to what the apostles were teaching them. They were devoted to one another in a deep, deep way. They were committed to remembering that the Lord had died on the cross for their sins, and they were passionate prayer warriors. And the Bible says that the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. It is growing every, every day. And then we read about these signs and wonders that the apostles, also the disciples, the apostles' disciples at this point, it's, it's the same people, even though there's several titles, they, they are doing these miraculous signs and wonders. And we read about in Acts chapter 3 and into Acts chapter 4 last week that Peter and John, they were going up to the temple to pray. And there was a man there that um, was crippled for over 40 years, and, and people used to bring him to, to stay at the temple gate called Beautiful, and he would beg for money. And Peter and John walked by, and, and they saw him. And do you remember what Peter said to him? Silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Walk. And as we read last week, this man's legs and ankles became strong, and he stood up and he began walking and praising and clinging on to Peter and John. First time in 40 years he stood up like that. And, and the Bible says when that happened, word spread so fast that people were coming from all over the temple area to listen to what Peter and John had to say, and the church on that day grew a couple more thousand people. It grew to 5,000 strong. Peter and John, we saw they were arrested for that. They were thrown in jail. They had to spend the night in jail. Um, the religious leaders who had killed Jesus are the same guys now that are arresting Peter and John. And they warned them, don't ever talk about Jesus. Quit evoking the name of Jesus. Quit telling everybody that he has risen from the dead. Quit blaming us. And I love Peter's courage. He looks at these guys in the eyes and he says, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. There is no way I can honor what you're telling me to do. There's no way I can stop talking about Jesus. I can't stop talking about what we've seen and what we've heard. And you know what? I'm going to choose to obey God, not you. And these guys didn't know what to do with Peter and John, so they eventually let them go. Peter and John went back to the church. They went back to their people, and we get invited into this prayer time that the church had. And at the end of that prayer time, the Lord shook the walls of the house. I still believe in a God that shakes walls. How about you? All the momentum in the first four chapters of Acts is with these Christians. The church seems like this unstoppable force to be reckoned with and it was but when you come to acts chapter 5 there's going to be a new attack on the church but this is a little bit different than what we've read about in acts chapter 3 and acts chapter 4 because there the attacks on the church the pressure the persecution it was coming from the outside of the church the religious leaders the temple guards people like that this this new attack on the church 
it's not going to come from the outside. It's going to come from within the church. And this new threat from within the church will absolutely threaten the momentum that the church is riding at this time. If you've got your Bibles, go ahead and turn over to Acts chapter 5. And once you find Acts chapter 5, I'm going to have you look backwards, just a couple verses, into Acts chapter 4. Because understanding the end of Acts 4 helps us better appreciate and understand what's happening in Acts chapter 5. If you look at Acts chapter 4, if you look back at verse 32, this is about where we left off last week. It, it says this, after the Lord shook the walls of the house that they were praying in, it says that all the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything that they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. From time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Now, if you've been with us throughout this whole series, you might read that and say, hey, we read something very similar to that, didn't we? And I'd say, yes, we did. Back in Acts chapter 2, at the end of that chapter, sounds very familiar what we're reading at the end of Acts chapter 4. There's this church. It's a unified bunch. Their witness is strong. They take care of one another. Nobody had any needs at all. And we learned that they were practicing what I would simply refer to as all-in generosity. I mean, these Christians were a very generous bunch. And so here in Acts chapter 4, right at the end of it, it is now the second time that we have read that these early Christians were characterized by their generosity. It was one of the markers and acknowledgments of their faith in Jesus Christ. So you don't need to look there, but back in Acts 2.45, what did it say? They sold property and possessions and gave to anyone who had need. And then we just read, no one claimed that any of their possessions were their own. Chapter 4, verse 32, they shared everything that they had. A couple of verses later, there was no needy persons among them. From time to time, there were those that owned land and homes. They would sell those, give the money and the proceeds to the apostles, and they distributed it to people who had need. There's no denying it. These Christians were generous. And you're going to see in the book of Acts and many other places in the New Testament that it was the generosity of the church and, and, and the servant spirit attitude of the Christians that absolutely drove evangelism all throughout the New Testament. It was the generosity of Christians. It was like the fuel to this evangelistic fire that was going on. We see it all over the place. Their generosity is a direct reflection of the church's unity, and the church's unity is a direct reflection of the fact and the truth that the Holy Spirit was in them and with them and guiding them every step of the way. Acts 1-4 to powerful example of generosity. I want to say something, though, before we get into chapter 5 about generosity. What these early Christians were doing, these Acts 1 to 4 Christians, what they were doing and what they were practicing and what was happening in the church at that time, it was completely different than what we hear a lot about today 
coming from our elected leaders and those who are running for different offices in our land when they talk about subjects like fair share, everybody doing your fair share, sharing the wealth in our country, or uh, wealth distribution. These are all topics that seem to make the rounds of all of our governmental leaders. And I want to point out something, that what Acts 1 through 4 is talking about is completely different. We're not even talking about the same thing that our political leaders are talking about, even though our political leaders talk about those subjects like it's the Christian thing to do. Or am I the only one that draws that connection? It's completely different. I'm going to be very just trans, probably a little more transparent with you than I usually am about some of these things. But when I hear a politician, I don't care on what side of the aisle they happen to fall upon, but when I hear a politician quote scripture, especially when they take it out of context and they try to use that scripture as a justification to push a political agenda in our country, it really grates against my spirit a lot. But I hear very little, honestly, coming from a lot of our elected leaders, not all of them, but a lot of them, that truly reflects the Christian thing to do. And we'd be very wise in discerning followers of Christ to be able to discern the difference. What was so unique and what was so incredible about the generosity that we read about in the first four chapters of the book of Acts, and quite frankly, what makes it so different than what we hear on TV all the time about these things is this. What the Christians were doing was purely voluntary, and it was completely motivated by love for one another. That's the biggest difference. Completely voluntary, completely motivated by love for one another. I think about these 5,000 Christians so far in the book of Acts. Where did these people come from? What makes up this church? Well, there's, there's little doubt that a good number of them were from Jerusalem. They were from that area. But it also makes sense to to deduce anyway that many of these new Christians as well were from not from Jerusalem. They were from, from far off places. Do you remember in Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost, Luke tells us that when the disciples started preaching, there was about 15 different geographical locations where people were coming from. And they heard this, this miracle, the preaching in tongues, where the disciples spoke in their own language, they heard it in their own. There were different languages, but they all heard it. We can assume that many of those Christians didn't go home right away. They stayed put. This is a brand new movement of God, and, and they are committed to it. There was going to be needs that came up in this group of 5,000 Christians. We'll say many of them are from other places. They needed help from just taking care of their daily needs. So generosity became the norm, purely voluntary, purely motivated by love, and it's not the same thing that we hear about from our elected leaders a lot of the time even though they try to draw the connection between it. I think we also need to know that there was this generous spirit in the church, but not every believer sold everything they had and gave it to the church. It was not forced on anybody. Not everybody sold a home and gave all the proceeds so the church can be taken care of. Um, it says in Acts 4, or 4.34, what does it say? We just read it. From time to time. That's how it starts. From time to time, those who owned lands and houses sold them, brought money of the sales, and gave it to the apostles. 
this gives me the impression that some of them did this, not all of them did this. So there were some who were in a position to do so, and they did, being led by the Spirit, being guided by, by the servant-minded, generosity voluntarily. But it was not mandatory. That was the Christian thing to do. So that's the characteristic of these early Christians. There was just a real spirit of all-in generosity. Now, look at chapter 5, because all of that leads into chapter 5, verse 1. It says this, Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, they, gave, they kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept some for yourself, some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not just lied to human beings, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. And if you're reading this for the very first time, okay, if you've never read the book of Acts and, and me telling you and read this story is the first time that you have ever read this, you might be thinking, and I think rightly so, you might be thinking, holy cow, that is a harsh punishment. That is, that, is, that is harsh. I mean, the punishment for selling a piece of property and keeping a little bit for yourselves is death. Can that be right? Is, are we supposed to understand that when the offering bags get passed, if we don't put the right amount in the offering bags, we may not make it out of church alive? Is, well, we've already taken the offering and we're all still here, so I imagine we're okay for now. What are we supposed to take away from this? Because this, honestly, is different than anything we've read so far in the book of Acts. This is a whole different feel here. I'll tell you, what's going on here in the book of Acts really has nothing to do with the amount of money that was given by Ananias and Sapphira to the apostles. What we've got going on here in Acts chapter 5 is deception. This is hypocrisy on full display. Hypocrisy is what? It's a deliberate deception. In the drama world, a hypocrite is somebody who puts on a mask or, or plays an actor. But hypocrisy, we would describe it like this. It's, it's when, you know, uh, somebody says something but does something completely different in order to deceive. That's hypocrisy. Uh, the, the late George MacDonald, who was a pastor and author many, many years ago, he, he wrote this. Half of the misery in the world comes from trying to look instead of trying to be what one is not. And you know what? Within the church, there is a form of hypocrisy that can be quite dangerous to any church family. And that hypocrisy is this. When we try to look more spiritual and holy than what we really are. When we try to behave in such a way that those around us go, well, there's a really good Christian, but deep down in our heart we know we're not. There's a form of spiritual hypocrisy 
And that is what's going on in Acts chapter 5 with Ananias and Sapphira. How in the world did Peter know that uh, he was trying to deceive everybody? It seems like Peter was dialed in from, from the get-go, but, but how did he know Ananias was a hypocrite? How did he know that he was withholding some of the money and trying to deceive? I mean, Zillow.com wasn't around back then. So how did he know? Well, I, I don't really know, other than to say the Holy Spirit told him. The Holy Spirit seems to be guiding the apostles at every step of the way, and we can assume the Holy Spirit clued Peter in that we've got a problem, we've got sin going on inside of the church. And if Peter were to allow this sin to go unconfronted, it would have most likely have paid the way for more sin in the future. Same thing happens today. If we don't confront sin, even personally in our own lives or in the church, it really usually just opens the door for more problems down the road. And I think Peter here is setting the tone early that sin is not to be tolerated in the church. Because God hates sin. The whole reason Jesus went to the cross and died was to pay for those sins. So Peter's like, sin is not going to run rampant inside this church. No lying, no deception. No hypocrisy won't stand for it. It almost kind of has this feeling that Peter and the apostles, they instinctively understood that there would be more attacks from the outside. They've already been thrown in prison once for talking about Jesus. That's going to happen again, in fact, very quickly. There seems to be understanding we're going to get attacked from the outside. But Peter seems to be bound and determined to not let the church self-destruct from sin on the inside. If you think about it, isn't that exactly what brought the nation of Israel down under the old covenant? Uncontrolled, unabated sin that wrecked havoc with their relationship with God. So under the old covenant, covenant sin, idolatry, running rampant among God's people, it really did wreck God's relationship with them. But now the church here in Acts, they're under the new covenant, the covenant written in the blood of Jesus Christ. But the same problems that plagued those under the old covenant can still plague those under the new covenant and can absolutely still, to this day, wreak havoc in your walk with Jesus Christ. You know, I look back uh, um, over the Old Testament, I think about the old covenant days in the Bible. I think it's worth noting. That every time in the Bible where we read about kind of a, a new or the beginning of a new salvation period for Israel, it seems like God judges harshly at the very beginning of these transitions in Israel's history. Let me give you an example. When the Lord set up the tabernacle system in the Old Testament, in the, in the wilderness, when the Israelites were wandering for 40 years and God gave them all the commands to obey and he set up a tabernacle, this is where God's presence was going to be with the people. God killed Nadab and Abihu for trying to present false fire to the Lord. There was dishonesty right at the front end. I think about later when the Israelites moved into the promised land. And it was a new day for them as they were going to take possession of all that God was giving to them. And we read that he had Achan killed for disobeying orders right after they entered the promised land. While God is certainly not responsible for the sins of people, he did use what I would just call judgments and warnings 
to the whole group of people. And even all of that adds up to us today. If you want to turn over to 1 Corinthians 10, I would invite you to. The scriptures will be on the screens behind me. But I want to take you to 1 Corinthians 10 because there I think it helps us really understand the intensity and the actions of Acts chapter 5. So if you look over to Acts cha- or excuse me, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the events of 1 Corinthians 10 happens many years after Acts chapter 5. This is the, after the church had, had expanded beyond Jerusalem that we'll read about here in a few weeks. This is when um, Christianity and churches were popping up all over the place where there was a gathering of Christians in the city of Corinth. And they were experiencing some significant troubles and trials. And so the Apostle Paul, again, this is quite a few years after Acts 5, he writes them a letter. That letter is in your New Testament. It's called 1 Corinthians. And he writes in this letter uh, about uh, being a Christian and all these things. When you get to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul is warning the church in Corinth, these Christians, about the dangers of idolatry. And interestingly enough, Paul uses examples from Israel's history under the Old Covenant, their history with idolatry, and how God dealt with them. And and he's pointing back to those things as a warning to Christians now. Let me show you what I mean. Look at verse 1 of chapter 10. Paul writes to these Christians, For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud, and they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. There's a lot happening there, but essentially, this is the message Paul is saying in these first few verses. He's acknowledging these are God's people. They had the same experiences as everybody else. These are the people that God rescued out of Egypt from slavery. These are the people that were guided by God by smoke and fire. These are the people who God led across the Red Sea on dry land. These are the people who God had installed Moses as their leader. This is a unified group on a unified purpose of becoming God's people. This is what Paul is saying to them. Now look at verse 5. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with, with most of them. Their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. You realize that the majority of the people that God rescued out of Egypt never saw the promised land. Most of them did not. There were all kinds of problems and issues and, and things that took place in there in the wilderness. And that's why Paul said, and their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. They didn't make it. And look at verse 6. Now, these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. We should not commit sexual immorality, as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 of them died. We should not test Christ as some of them did, and were killed by snakes. And do not grumble, as some of them did, and were killed by the destroying angel. Paul is bringing up examples from Israel's history, their idolatry and the things that they were involved with as examples. You can go back to the Old Testament and look up the examples that Paul is bringing 
to their attention. Like when he said, do not be idolaters like they were. There are many examples you could point to. One of the biggest ones is when they gathered all the gold from all the people and they forged out of it a golden calf as an idol and they bowed down and worshipped it like it's a god. Paul's like, don't, don't be like them. They got punished severely. When they went against God and they sinned, God guided them, protect all of that should be examples to us today. And if you look at verse 11, Paul acknowledges that. He says, these things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for who? Us. On whom the culmination of the ages has come. It's almost like Paul saying, we know about all that stuff. It all culminates of God's story, and here we stand. It's an example. So if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. I think Paul is just simply pointing out, he's warning them about idolatry and the dangers of it. And he's telling these Christians in Corinth that these examples from the past should teach us properly about today. And that's really what's going on here if we go back to Acts chapter 5. The church is a brand new salvation movement. And God is about to make an example, very harshly and severely, on the front end as an example that sin is not going to be tolerated inside the church. And I think about that, and, and I think it's, 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 it is hardcore. It is, I'll admit it. But why was this such a serious sin? Why was this such a serious issue to God that he would act so swiftly and justly on? Here today, we have about 2,000 years of distance between us and Ananias and Sapphira. And I would say about 2,000 years of some real desensitization between us and them. And, and I think there's a truth here that many Christians today even struggle with seeing sin and the intensity of it in the same way God does. And we look back and we're like, man, God sure was harsh with him. Why was he so hard on him? That, that seems like a, 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 the pendulum swung way too far the other day. But that's just because a lot of us don't see sin the same way God sees it. Here is why this was so serious to God. There's, there's really three things I can detect from the text. Three things. The first one is this. Their sin, Ananias and Sapphira, it was energized by Satan himself. Here we are, right here at the beginning of Acts. Satan is still a presence. Remember what Peter said to Ananias in Acts chapter 5, verse 3? Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart? It's like Peter saying, Ananias, how could you let the devil have this kind of influence on you? How could you invite him into what we are doing? And so Ananias' behavior really is energized by Satan himself. This is also in some ways an acknowledgement that even though the devil has been defeated, he was defeated by Jesus on the cross and when he rose from the dead, it doesn't mean that the devil is not still actively working against God's purposes. It was Paul, the Apostle Paul, who would later write to the church many years later in the book of Ephesians chapter 6 that all Christians should do what? Put on the full armor of God. Why should we do this? So that we can take a stand and guard against who? The devil and his wicked scheming. 
Friends, the, the devil is still defeated. His future is set. We know how his story ends. But he's still actively pursuing efforts against the Holy Spirit. He's actively working against us. And what's going on with Ananias and Sapphira, right here at the beginning, it is the enemy energizing them to work against the church. And so in Acts chapter 5, Satan is really trying to get his foot in the door of the church, and God's swift action is like slamming the door on Satan. And he is still trying to do that. He's still trying to get his foot in the door of your heart. Satan is still trying at every turn to get his foot in the door of this church. And it's our responsibility with the help of the Holy Spirit to continually be slamming the door on the devil. That he has no place here. Last year I preached a sermon series called Drifting. You might remember that. This sermon series had a profound impact on my life as I tried to put into words what I felt in my heart, what the Bible is teaching, and the condition of the church across our land. And when I think about the church at large, I see a worldliness creeping into the church. I sense that it is like the church opening the doors wide to the enemy's influence when it should be slamming the door shut on him. And when I think about what the church struggles with today, it is not what the Christians struggled with a generation or two ago. What was so crystal clear and still is crystal clear from the Bible seems in many churches and among many Christians to be now all of a sudden gray areas. And for me, gray areas is when we open the door to the devil when we should be slamming it in his face. That's why this is so serious. The devil doesn't have any presence here, and we shouldn't invite him in. And that's what Ananias and Sapphira were doing. Their actions were energized by Satan, and that's why Peter called it out at the beginning. This was so serious as well because of a second reason, is that their sin was motivated by pride. Now, you may not have seen this right away, but really, if you think about it, their sin was motivated by pride. And pride is one of those sins that God just really, really hates. I mean, sin is sin. One sin separates us from God. But as you read the Bible, pride seems to be the one that's highlighted as the one that God really, really hates. Do you know what it says in the Bible in many places? God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Pride is the one sin, out of all the sins in the Bible, pride is the one that it says God will work against you on. God will oppose you. I don't know about you, but I don't need God opposing me. There's enough opposition already. I don't need God to oppose me. Pride. God doesn't stand for it. When Jesus walked the earth in his ministry, he was constantly pointing out the religious leaders' pride and hypocrisy. You might recall back in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus was talking about these religious leaders and he talked about them in these terms. He said, they love to stand on the street corners, they love to walk in the parades, and they love to get the praises of men heaped on them. They love it when, when, when people think they're so wonderful. And Jesus said, those guys have received the reward in full. The applause of people is all they get. That's not a fair trade. The praise of people in exchange for eternity with our Heavenly Father, that's not fair. But that's what pride does. 
Jesus is pointing out, they got the reward in full. They're going to miss out on what really is important. Pride. God hates pride. And Ananias and his wife Sapphira were all about the praise. They were not about the sacrifice. They wanted people to praise their gift. They wanted people to say, look how spiritual that they are. Didn't we do a good thing? I think their lust for recognition conceived a pretty massive sin in their heart, and that sin grew up fast, and it led to their demise. And that's what sin often does. It's a serious deal. Third third reason why this was such a serious issue here in Acts chapter 5 was this. Their sin was directed at God's church. It was directed at God's church. Now think about the progression here. God loves his church, and the Bible talks about how God is jealous over it. He's jealous over us. The church, you and I, we were purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. A great price was paid for us, and God's not going to share. So it says he's jealous over us. He's not going to share us with the enemy. He's not going to share us with sin. We've got a great mission here as a church to glorify God and to be about his work. Satan wants to destroy it. The easiest way to do it is to dismantle it from within through sin. Think about Peter. Had he not been discerning in this moment, Ananias and Sapphira could have very easily become very influential people inside of the early church. Maybe people would have bought in and said, man, look how spiritual they are. Maybe they should lead us. Maybe they should do this. And if that were to have happened, Satan would have been working through them to accomplish his purposes ongoing. Now, I think we've got to keep in mind here that Ananias and Sapphira, their sin was not robbing God, as if God needs any of our money. It's all his money. But their sin was lying and robbing him of his glory and putting the church in danger, and he's going to have none of that. Look at verse 7. Here's what happens to Ananias' wife. She remembers she wasn't with him when he came in. About three hours later, his wife came in. Not knowing what had happened, Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? I think Peter is giving her an opportunity to confess and to come clean. And to repent and to be forgiven. But she didn't do that. She said, yes, that's the price. Peter said to her, how could you conspire and test the Holy Spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out also. I don't know what the look on her face was at that moment. Couldn't have been good. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. The young men came in and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. I would think so. I think great fear is another way of saying great respect for God. I think we've got about 2,000 years of distance between us and this moment in Acts 5. And I ask the question, I'll present to you, what are we supposed to take from this? What is our, you know, what is this here for us? What do we do with really intense examples in the Bible like this when we read them? And there's, there's a number of others. 
I think it's an opportunity for us as a church family to examine our own lives and really ask a very hard question here. Does my profession match my practice? In other words, what do I profess? What I say I believe, does that match my practices? What I do with my life? Think about when we're in our life groups and we're about, maybe we have a time of prayer and, and we pray about things together as, as a group. Do we really mean the things that we're praying about or do we want our life group to think we're just really spiritual? When we gather here together for worship and we sing praises to God, are we doing that with a sincere heart? Or is there any part of this that just is like, you know, I, you know what, if I do this and behave this way and, and uh, people might think more of me than this. I'm like, do we come in here, do we sing and we worship? Are we here for the right reasons with a pure heart, out of a pure devotion to our Heavenly Father who paid it all for our very salvation? Does our profession match our practices? Is our fellowship with other Christians, who we run with, and what we, is that just for show, or is that really a reflection of a pure and devoted heart to our Heavenly Father? It was Jesus who said in Matthew 15, there are going to be some who honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Does our profession match our practices? I, I think this way sometimes, maybe it's a, a little bit morbid, but if God was still in the business of striking down hypocrites and deceivers in the church, what would our attendance be on an average weekend? <laughs> I don't know. Heavy stuff. 